Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back to the Shema Podcast for part two of the Kabbalah of Intimacy with Rabbi Cohen. As a recap of the last episode, which really the gravity of it didn't hit me until I was going back and doing the editing and listening to it over and over. And the gravity of it then weighed on me because what Rabbi Cohen is telling us is something of vital importance. What are you saying? If we really want to usher in the era of Mashiach, is to understand this when we're conceiving children, how important our thoughts are. He explained that when one is conceiving a child and bringing a heavenly soul into this world, that that soul is enclosed with a garment. And it's through the improper thoughts that that garment becomes tarnished. And that is all the negative character traits that we are fighting through our entire lives trying to perfect. And so if we do this properly, if we have the proper thoughts and those garments are not tarnished and we'll bring in souls in this world with perfect midot and they will be the light, the rest of us, which we desperately need. Welcome back, Rabbi Cohen. You left us with many unanswered questions. So much more now we want to know. So I've been anticipating having this second interview with you to fill in the, the, the gaps here and the other information that we're, we're still uh, missing. We're going to try. So what we have here, there's a classic text uh, called Igerta Kodesh, which is literally means the holy letter. We have excerpts from it, some, some selections there that we can discuss in terms of, let's say, the proper mental setting. There is like four categories, like who to marry. And then there's the idea of the issue of a woman in her cycle. And then... There is the physical setting, such as, you know, no lights on in the room during relations and all the other things you have to should be covered and no being, shouldn't be angry, shouldn't be drunk and things like that. And now we're going into the proper mental setting. In other words, what do you think about now? This is training because, of course, you know, understand our we usually are going on one path and there's two parts to our soul. There's our there's our higher soul and then there's our lower soul and the lower soul is already running. And we have to be able to harness and utilize the higher soul in terms of the thinking. So we have here excerpts from certain chapters that I'm going to go over that my father-in-law of blessed memory basically put in his book, in, his, in the appendix of his book about the sexual union. So the first thing is our sages bring down a phrase a very important phrase. In all your ways know Hashem. Or, you shall go in His ways, meaning God's ways. And what does that mean to go in God's ways? So basically, they, they explain that just as He is holy, so you also must be holy. So should you be holy. Now the question is, what does that mean? What do you, how do you explain holiness? And the word in Hebrew is Kedusha, something which is kadosh or holy. How would you define it? Do you have any ideas, Dan, on what that is? From what I understand, like in the Shema where it says to fulfill all my mitzvot and be holy, is that 
there is prohibitive and permitted. And within the permitted, there's ways of making those permitted actions holy by even having further refinement around those activities. Like for instance, chocolate cake may be kosher, but to sit there and eat an entire chocolate cake three times a day would not be holy. There you go. So it's drawing a line. You have to draw a line. There's a line. When there's a line drawn, there's holiness. Whenever there's a fence like that, I won't go beyond that. That's a fence. Okay. And that is holiness. Okay. There's certain things that you won't do and certain things that you're going to stay within the parameters. In other words, basically your mind is going to be on a certain level of sanctity that which we're going to go into. And if you could, Rabbi, it brings up a question I had, which as you go through this, if you could help clarify, is that you were talking last time about what the rabbis did not permit, and now they are a little more laxed in what they permit. So obviously there's some things that the Torah says precisely, do this, don't do this. And then I guess the rabbis are creating some fences and additional barriers in this area it's a good point. It's a big point. I heard a great answer once that, you know, imagine you come in to your house one day and your wife is dressed very nicely and the table is set. There's even a candles at the table and there's a nice meal and you come in from your day at work and uh, all of a sudden she hints you, don't you remember what today is? And of course, it's your anniversary and you completely forgot. Of course, she has a gift for you and you have diddly squat for her. Okay, that's the eh zone. Okay. You don't want to get in that. So the problem is, you know, how could a person forget his anniversary? And obviously, that is a mark on the relationship. If a person were to forget those kind of things. The idea here is, of course, if it's a serious relationship, those things will not be forgotten. I'm using this as a, as a metaphor in terms of our relationship with God. That once upon a time... Us with God, we were so tight that, of course, there's things that we would not forget. We would never lose that connection. But since we've been in exile for 2,000 years, where we lose things. We forget things. We forget the anniversary. Okay? We actually can forget the anniversary because we're so caught up. And the rabbis saw this in terms of the relationship, the general relationship of the Jewish people, in terms of the relationship to God. And so the rabbis... There was fundamental things that, of course, enhance and ensure quality in the relationship. But then, of course, things got out of hand and forgetfulness sets in. And so the rabbis instituted many kind of things in order to help perpetuate or to help uh, in, uh, keep that thought of the relationship. For example, blessings. A hundred blessings a day. We have to say a hundred blessings a day, basically. It's normally in the normal day, uh, daily routine of an Orthodox Jew. They usually will say about a hundred blessings a day when you come out of the bathroom, when you have a drink of water. It comes out to that and through the prayers and everything like that. Because, but the idea here is, of course, men forget, people forget, and we have to be reminded constantly that, hey, there's a God. Hey, he's your source. Okay. Hello, I'm here. What am I chopped liver? So the idea here is the rabbis came and they instituted a lot of things. You're right. Like I said, to bring down the first things is whom you marry. That's from the Torah. There, The Torah prescribes whom a person can marry. The second category was Nida and Mikvah, which is a menstrual cycle. And she has to go to the Mikvah. In other words, a woman, even though you marry the right woman, and there are certain times where you cannot have relations with her. That is biblically prohibited. 
That's from the Torah. And then all the other things came because that we might lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing. So the rabbis made all of these certain ways of how to do it in a, in a modest way so that we don't lose focus and that we lose the purpose of it. They did the best they could. They can't do a hundred thing, hundred percent. And then of course, what is so, so there is biblical and there is the rabbinical advice that they give, the instructions that they give. So those, the rabbis, are going to go ahead and according to what the time and the situation is, they can maneuver because that's rabbinical. We always have to keep in the the Torah prohibitions in mind for the most strictest of things. And they're making offense for it. So, so number chapter two. Okay, so the first thing is, just as God is holy, so you to be holy, that means you don't mess. That means you have to basically in your mind. You have to be sanctified to your spouse and only your spouse. That means you cannot look. Your eyes cannot wander. You are not permitted to go ahead and just make your eyes to be abandoned on the things of the street and the computer screen or whatever it is. Because that's part of the sanctity principle. That's part of me and my wife have a relationship. And for a person, and we know how the evil inclination works. The eye sees, the heart desires, and then the body goes after. So the first thing that comes out of a person's mind is his eyes. So if the eyes get captured in something that is outside, external, then other than his relationship with his spouse, so that is going to cause mostly all of the problems. It is really the first place where a person can defeat his evil inclination in this area. Watch your eyes. And they have even a website, I think, that they built quite a few years to help people who have problems with watching their eyes. GuardYourEyes.com. I went on it once. It's a great website. It helps a lot of people. A lot of people get help from it. It's like Mamish and Alcoholics Anonymous, the way that they treat it. Because especially now these days, that there's so much promiscuity, it's outrageous. And therefore, people have to really take it very seriously. I'm talking about even just normal people just going into the bank, going into the airport. I mean, does anybody get dressed in the airports these days? So it's just like what people dress. It's unbelievable. So billboards, I mean, I can't drive in L.A. because there's huge billboards uh, that are just posted on the side of the freeways that, you know, have pictures which are not appropriate. And in the 60s, that would not be appropriate. But nowadays, you know, things broke down. So the rabbis know this and they see this and they understand the evil inclination. So that's why, as we're going to discuss later, there's certain rules that they were able to go ahead and move back on. And that in order to establish and maintain and strengthen a person's relationship with their spouse, that they can still hold that relationship and the person, whether he or she, will not go elsewhere to feed their evil inclination. So there's a level of idea, the concept of holiness is a big concept in us. It really is our power. That really is the source of our power. When we separate from those unholy things, those things which will break down our relationship, that gives us much more power. That's the real source of it. As soon as we lose that and talk about in general, in if populace of, of Am Yisrael, God forbid, were to go outside and think that this, their pleasures or to feed their evil inclination with external objects and things. So then that breaks down our level of holiness. And then 
what happens is we lose our power. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, union is holy and clean when it is done in accordance with what is proper and in the proper time and with the proper mentality. There are certain times it brings down in the Shulchan Aruch, actually in the Shulchan Aruch itself, there is in Reish, uh, Reish Mem, which is two chapters 240, it brings the laws, 17 laws in terms of how a person should behave when having relations. And it does bring down, depending upon a person's occupation, how many times that he has to, that he should have relations that week. So therefore, if a person is overcome with their evil inclination, so that of course you have relations with your spouse. These are only proposed guidelines. But there there are times that say at night, you know, you should only do it at night. But because during the day, there's a lot of noise. There's, you know, the person who's working on your garden or there's people in the street. And then she, and then you have to have focus because the wife need, definitely needs focus. And, and therefore, you know, it's not prescribed during the day. But nowadays, if the evil inclination is there... And the timing is right. You, you can do it in the day as long as you try to block the windows as much as possible and make it as dark as possible in the room. So that's the proper time and the proper mentality which we're going to get to. Anyone says that union is disgusting or ugly should seize and forbear, which is an amazing thing because someone just showed me from Rabbi Nachman, the holy master, who did say that actually about it, the repulsive. He wanted to use those words. And how do you understand that? How do you understand his words? And, you know, his words, I would think, would probably more like trying to get people to try. He was trying to reframe it for his students in a way that, you know, it, w- it wouldn't be built up to such a high thing. Because a lot of people run after sex. And, of course, you know, the, the, the craving for it is always much more higher than the actual fulfilling of it. Some people, they crave for whatever it is. You know, let's say a car. I want this car. I got to have this car. And their desire is huge and they're heavy and they're seeing this kind of car everywhere. And then they finally get the car and what? Is that all it is? You know, the idea here is that's what his direction is. Because some people just get so caught up in the physical act itself and he wanted to try to just take it down a notch. But, of course, this is the Ramban talking who is a Rishon who comes before Rav Nachman. And he says, anyone who says that union is disgusting or ugly should seize and forbear. There was once a rabbi I heard that he wanted to not get any pleasure in having relations. He wanted to do this. Okay, have relations without getting pleasure. And I believe that the child came out birth defect. You're not supposed to do that. You cannot think that it's disgusting or ugly. Don't ever think that. And Judaism does not say that. I know that some religions in the world might think that. That is not Judaism. Okay, union is called Da'at. Da'at in English means knowledge. Now it brings down here, it says Elkanah knew his wife Hannah. In the Tanakh, in the Bible, just you have to go to Adam. Adam knew his wife Eve and she gave birth to a son. And the language of intimacy is the same language as knowledge. Now you got to put those two together. That's kind of interesting, huh? What does that mean? What does dot mean? What does knowledge mean? And then how does that have to do with intimacy? So knowledge, just to translate in the highest concept, conceptual sense, is connection. When you connect with someone, when you know something, when you know this town, you know this town. I could take somebody where my I, I was in yeshiva for 10 years. I know every brick. I know every turn. I know every corner. I know it. When you know something, you're intimate with it. When you're intimate with something, you know it. But here he's got to go through a little bit of a deeper idea. 
but it's very, very deep. And Adam knew Eve, his wife. That means relations. And Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. That means relations. So the, the topic or the term that it brings down the first place in Genesis is talking, relating intimacy with knowledge. And there's a heavy, heavy stuff that comes from this. Let me ask you a question. Is the, the equivalent then when we study Torah and we get knowledge of Torah, is that equivalently creating intimacy between us and God? Yes, absolutely. You know, I was once with, I was Rabbi Schwartzman. He's the, he was the Rosh Yeshiva of Lakewood that I was in. I was in his Yeshiva and he was, you know, explained to, to the Bachrim, you know, when you, when you approach a page of, of Gomorrah, okay, the first time it's like, okay, you're meeting for the first time. And then you spend a little more time with it. And then you spend a little more time and you become more intimate. And then you know what it's thinking. This is going to be much and much deeper sense in terms of, let's say, a spiritual union that you're making with your wife that is going to bring down what we call mochin, the godlut, and which means literally in English, brains of maturity, okay, or mentalities of maturity, meaning a higher level of consciousness, that this union creates a higher level of consciousness for you and the world. But here he's going to go through just something pretty basic. Therein lies a fundamental secret. The sperm and the ovum are originally generated in the mind. And when they are drawn down with holiness and purity, then they draw down knowledge and understanding of the mind. This is something that science does not concur with because they don't have anything. But we have handed down in Kabbalistic tradition that our sperm comes from our brain and her egg comes from her brain. Now, if you look at it really interestingly, I made this connection. I don't know why nobody else has made this connection, or maybe they have. But when you look at a sperm cell in a microscope, what does it look like? A sperm cell looks like a brain with a spine that's swimming, doesn't it? It's a little brain. It's a little brain that's swimming. Swimming brain. Of course, I ask doctors and they go, no, it's not that. But we don't care because we understand that in the spiritual realm, this is what happens. Now, the brain, we still know, has a left, fe- left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. We have to go into a little bit of Kabbalistic wisdom here. Now, we know that the right brain really corresponds with what we'll call wisdom, and the left brain actually corresponds with what we call understanding. There are different factions or different sets of the brain according to Kabbalistic doctrine. Wisdom is basically, we look at it as the seed, and we look at understanding more like as the ground. Look at it like that. You take the seed, you plant it in the ground. And their union, when they get together, when your whole mind gets together, your left and your right brain, so to speak, then what is created is what's called da'at or knowledge. So we have what's called classically as chachma. In, in English, that's wisdom. Bina, which is understanding. And then da'at. Da'at is mind or da'at is knowledge. But it's intimate knowledge. And when I speak of intimate knowledge, it's an interesting thing that what da'at does and this is really takes a big part in it, and this is why we understand that the sperm comes from the brain. When we know something, our body resonates with it, as opposed to thinking something externally, surface. It's a thought, it's an idea, but it's not integrated into your body. When you think certain thoughts, you know, I always teach this, when you know, every thought creates an angel, force. Now, depending upon the level of the way that you connect with that thought, will be the f- level of the power of the angel, the force that you created. So if you create, if you resonate with a, 
in a, deeply with a thought, your body actually could shake from it. You could feel the thought in your brain and in your body, mostly in your body. It moves. It tr- you can tremble from certain thoughts. Your body is resonating something and your intuition is saying, no, this is, n- that's knowledge. That's dot. Your dot, your knowledge is saying, no, that's not right. Or your knowledge is saying, this is the way. This is, this is right. So it's deep. So you, you need dot in order to move from your brain down into your body. That's why the, the brain or the sperm go through dot goes into the body and it's deep. And it's deeper knowledge and it's a deeper resonance. It's a deeper feeling tone, a deeper vibration. Intuition is very deep. It's very deep. It's interesting how everybody will requ- will equate intuition with the heart. What does the heart know? Like thinking intuition is in the heart, they say, because it's a deep body sense because the body has know what the sages have said. When a man and a wife unite in holiness, then the divine presence rests between them. So this is like the first meditation. The divine presence is there. You are with the divine. Don't think that divine God is hanging out outside in the waiting room. Don't think that he's somewhere else. This is. You actually become the divine union at the time. And the idea here is expressed with the words for man and woman in Hebrew. The man, the uh, the, the word for man in Hebrew is called ish. That's spelt with aleph, yud, and shin. Aleph, Yud, and Shin. And the word for woman is Isha, which is Aleph, Shin, Hey. Two letters are exactly identical for both man and woman, and that's Aleph and Shin. The two letters that are not identical are a Yud for man, Aleph, Yud, and Shin. That's a Yud for man. And for a woman, it is a Hey, Isha. The Hey is different. Now, Yud and Hey are the, is the name of God. The name of God, when there is peace between husband and wife, the, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, rests. Then, of course, I just got to throw in the what happens when there is no peace between husband and wife. And the Yud and the Hey, the name of God, leaves. And what are you left with? Aleph and Shin, which spell fire. Fire. And that's not the friendly fire. There's good fire when God is there. That's good fire. And then there's bad fire. When no God is present, and that's destructive. So you always want to have the divine presence there, and you have to know your Hebrew letters, and Yud and He are uniting. And when you do Yud and He uniting, when a person is having the relations, this requires practice. And we're going to get into this a little bit. Tip of the iceberg can't get too deep. But we can just touch on the surface. But we have to understand that the Yud and the He are divine name, is a divine name. And really, Yud and He actually, according to the Tikkuni Zohar, are the symbol of love and fear. Yud is love, fear, or awe. Look at it as awe, is hey. And that's why all the time that you have to do a mitzvah, any mitzvah, especially this mitzvah, the mitzvah of connecting husband and wife, it's such an unbelievable mitzvah. We are actually connecting Yud and hey with Vav and hey. The next two letters of the divine name is Vav and hey. Vav and He is man and woman. Vav and He actually are the, what we'll call the manifestation of the original thought. If you look at the name Yud and He and Vav and He, that name, that divine name that we're not allowed to pronounce as it is written, really means Yud and He is all potential and Vav and He is actual. 
So really the name of Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey spell thought manifest. That's the concept. The concept of thought manifest. Because Yud and Hey are mental and Vav and Hey are actual. It's manifestation. I have a question. You know, the letters all have are symbolic too in the way they're written. Is there anything to the Yud and the Hey with regard to the sexual organs of man and woman? All I would say to you, just shooting from the hip, I've never been asked that question, and it's an interesting question for sure. I can't, it, definitely now that you ask it, there is something that does make sense, and it is bizarre. And we're getting, there's some bizarre texts. The Yud, how does a Yud represent the sexual organ? It should be a Vav. A Vav is a straight line. A Yud is just a dot on a page. Well, I, I guess it, it depends on who you're referring to. <laughs> That's a good one. So the idea here is there is a halacha. I don't know if I could find it right away, but it's a, it's a, it's an astounding. This is going to whip you into another universe that you're not going to be able to actually, you're not going to be able to actually to grasp this at all because it's going to. I'm just going to try to find the language here. Halacha chet is ve'yishamish be'ema uvi'ira. The person when they're actually having relations has to do it with an awe. Fear and a trepidation. Kamoshamru al Rebbe Eliezer, Megale Tefach He would he would uncover a tefach and reveal a tefach, which is kind of strange to me because it has to be have to be completely unclothed. Vudome Kamishikafo shade, and he has to compare himself as if he's being forced by a demon. That is the uh, uh, strangest language, and everybody's mind is very. A lot, a lot of rabbis will shoot from the hip and give it a quick uh, understanding. And I asked a lot of people what this means. So here he says here, Perush shade with fear and trepidation, as if he's being forced, and as if a demon is forcing him. What does that mean? As if a demon is forcing you. That makes absolutely, like, it is absolutely strange. Like, when demons force you, have you ever been forced by a demon to do something and you're so afraid you better do it because the demon said so? I don't think so. It doesn't make sense. The whole statement is very cryptic. Just put it in cryptic, your crypt, your book of cryptic statements. But I did ask somebody just to answer you. I And, and why I'm, I'm going to get to this, your answer. A shade, what is a shade? The, the Hebrew word for demon, sorry, is shade. It's shin and dalet. We, however, we have a circumcision. Our circumcision is the tip makes it reveals, we call the crown of the membrum of our organ. That is the yud. So in other words, we who are created in the image and likeness of God, it is known that we are created in the image of Yud Kevav and also Shin Dalet Yud is on our very bodies, our physical bodies. There is an expression of Shin Dalet Yud. Where is the Shin? If you look at the nose, look at the nose. If I turn my head up, you see there's a Shin. It's an upside down Shin, but it's a Shin. Our hands is a Dalet, and then the crown of our organ is the Yud. The idea here is why you were you look. What are you looking at as the letters of Yud and Hey being an expression of the of the sexual organs themselves. I'm shooting from the hip here, but the Yud represents, let me tell you about demons. Demons are very interesting. Uh, Midrash uh, that brings down that on the sixth day of creation in Genesis, that God created 
the souls of the animals, the souls of man and the souls of demons. And then he created the bodies of the animals and he took the souls of the animals and put them in the bodies. He created the body of man and then he took the soul of man and put him in the body. And then he was about to create the bodies for the demons, but Shabbos came. I'm sorry, we're closed. Closed shop. Sorry. No body for you. So the demons got gypped out of a body. That's the language. Hold on a second. I can't imagine that God is not perfect at time management. You got to go in a little deeper here. Sorry, I didn't take time management 101. I'm just sorry. The time slipped by. Sorry. You're right. And this is like, what is this talking about? You cannot even put your head around such a thing. And they, they learn, and the rest of the language is also very perplexing. The rest of the language I'll just bring to you for the sake of entertainment is, and thus we learn manners from the demons. Because why? If a person is walking on Erev Shabbat with, a, with an object, and then someone says to him, Hey, it's Shabbos! He drops it right away. Because you're not allowed to carry in a public domain. So he's carrying an object, Someone says, Shabbos, the guy drops it. So from here, we learn manners, proper etiquette from the demons. Go figure. That's just, but the idea, that's why Hashem, like, basically, he, of course, he had a purpose in mind. Okay. A Shin Dalit is a representative, is a representative concept of something incomplete. Anything that is incomplete. A conceptual incompleteness. That's the, in terms of its concept, just in terms of in concept metaphor, because some people just don't know what to do with that idea. So I'm just looking at it as any, a person can be a demon if he's incomplete. But see, we who are circumcised, we are in the likeness and image of Shindalit and Yud. Therefore, Yud represents the sexual organ because it is the thing that brings us our completion. So you ask the question of Yud and Hay. Now, Hay, of course, is open. It has an open door. So therefore, that represents the womb. That's kind of easy. And this is all an answer to your question. That was never asked to me before, but thank you. We have to understand, and meditation number one is Yud and He are being joined here. You represent the Yud, the whole, the man. And the woman is Isha, and she represents He. So you can do a lot of different exercises with this. You can just picture the letter Yud. By the way, the letter Yud is the smallest letter in the entire Hebrew alphabet. And we always look at not necessarily what, how much space the letter itself takes, but we really look at the space around the letter that the letter itself does not take. In other words, we look at black fire on white fire. If you look at how the littler the black fire, the more little the letter, the more light there is. So Yud being the smallest letter, there is more light on the parchment around that letter. It represents tremendous light. And then the, the hay represents the bringing of fruition to that light. So here comes the creative aspect of it. The fourth path, meditations on union. This is the Ramban speaking, Nachmanides. I will enlighten you now about some things that are the highest in the world, and they are hidden because of several esoteric reasons. Know that God, may he be blessed, is the God of knowledge. He has implanted within humanity the power of imagination to generate things like those imagined. This is a very powerful thing. And people understand it, 
but not necessarily to the degree that they should. And I told you already that yud Hey and vav and Hey, the name yud Kei vav Kei, it means thought manifest, and that we are created in that image and likeness, and basically whatever thoughts that we create, whatever thoughts that we think, instantly is created a force to bring those to fruition. So we very much have to always be involved in controlling our minds, especially here in the level or the realm of imagination. When man and woman unite, if their imaginations and thoughts are occupied with wisdom and understanding, with good and proper qualities, then their imaginations undoubtedly have the power to form morphological configurations within the sperm and ovum according to what was imagined at the time of union. The secret is encoded in the story about Yaakov, Jacob, who took the rods of green poplar and of the hazel and chestnut tree, and the flocks conceived before the rods. This is a big idea in the physical sense as well as the spiritual sense. And the idea really comes from, in we have in the Genesis, uh, speaking of when Jacob was by his uncle Laban, and he was working and he worked for Rachel, and he worked for Leah, right? And then he was just working an extra six years, and his wage was basically he made a deal with his uncle, his uncle Laban, Lovin, which really means white. He was into everything white, lily white. Everything had to be white. So anyways, he always wore white. Everything was white, and he only wanted white sheep. He was not into speckled, spotted, or streaked sheep. And Yaakov knew that. So they made a deal, contract. What am I going to pay you? Laban said, Laban says. He says, what am I going to pay you? What's your wage? He says, listen, I know you're into the white. You'll go through the flock. You'll pick out everything white. And everything will be, and everything that's born that's white will be yours. And everything that's spockled, spedded, and cheap from the flock will be mine. In other words, I will get any, all of the, I'll get your rejects. Sounds like a plan. Sounds great to me. Great. But the problem is Yaakov had a dream and Hashem told him what to do. And he says, when the sheep are by the river, and, you know, and they're feeling real good in the afternoon sun and they feel like dancing and the chachas are playing, right? And the marayachis are playing or something like that. And it's a real romantic mood. You have to take these sticks and you have to put on the sticks, you know, you put spots on the sticks, carve spots and streaks on the sticks and put them in the water, all along the water where the sheep are hanging out and when they're mating. So when they're mating, what's going to be, they're, they're going to see these images of these spotted and speckled and streaked spots on the, on the poles that are in the water. And they're going to have kids that are going to be like that. And therefore, what happened? All of a sudden, you know, the seasons go by and Yaakov Avinu has amassed a huge amount of sheep that are all spotted. He's okay with it. I got sheep. That's a lot of wool. It's a lot of meat. Okay. And, you know, the, 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 the sons of Lovin were, were not happy about that because all of a sudden this guy has cornered the market on speckled and spotted sheep. And they, 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 they actually thought that, you know, he's ripping off our dad. They, they had bad attitude. Okay. He not Lovin made money, a lot of money. He changed the, the whole contract a hundred times, a hundred times, the Alshik says. He came and retried to configure the contract, and every time he configured it, Hashem made it that it would be in Jacob's favor. Okay? And Jacob came out ahead every single time. But the idea here is what the sheep were seeing, the children came out like that. So our sages were aware of this when they related in Brachot that Rabbi Yochanan 
went to the city, went to sit by the entrance of the mikvah, and he said, when the daughter of Israel come out, they will see me in order that they shall have beautiful children like me. Rabbi Yochanan had an unbelievable, luminous face and an unbelievable beauty. He was very beautiful. And not only that, beautiful in deeds and wisdom. And he would sit outside the mikvah. He's at a certain place where the women would see him. And of course, that would He's going to explain here. Thus, when a woman thinks of something beautiful, when she comes out from the mikvah, this thought makes an impression on her imagination. And it forms upon the fetus that morphological configuration and quality, as we have explained, because it's really in the imagination. It's on a physical form as well, but mostly the imagination. So since this is so, it follows that thoughts cause the child to be of a righteous disposition or a wicked one, according to what was in the imagination beforehand. But now this also bleeds into, let's say, if you, even if you're not having a child, okay? But this, because this bleeds into what we'll call a level or uh, of consciousness, frame of consciousness. Therefore, every person must purify his mind and thoughts at the time of union. He should not think about sinful things, but holiness. He should think about the holy saints and people of wisdom. This is why you'll see in many mikvahs in Israel, I believe. I know there was some in other places. There are pictures of holy rabbis on the walls in mikvah for this specific reason. Similarly, he should settle his wife's mind with joyful things in order that she should receive happiness. She should be happy. You have to be in a good state of mind. Like we learned before, can't be angry and can't be drunk. If you're drunk, you're just interested in the taiva and the physical lust. That is not appropriate. We're trying to bring down a high level of consciousness here. Then she will agree with him and he with her to form beautiful configurations and holy thoughts. And the two will be together in this network. Furthermore, it is said, anyone who marries a woman for her beauty, a sword devours him. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Again, anyone who marries a woman for her beauty, a sword devours him. What an idea. I mean, a sword. I mean, could you think of some other kind of imagery? And the reason is that their union is not for the sake of God. Hmm. Go figure. This is an interesting thing now. You have to kind of peel off. Yes, you have to be attracted. You cannot be repulsed, God forbid. But to marry her only for her beauty, that is not right. Because then, obviously, you're just only in a person. It would be only involved in superficial lusts. And then you'll have superficial children in a superficial world. Also, his thoughts are not pure and clean, but he is thinking about physical lusts, and God has no portion in the union, because there's something deeper here that's being created, something very deep. We're trying to bring levels of consciousness into the world, and this is an unbelievable vortex where a person can actually bring the highest thoughts possible not only for you and your wife and the family, but also the entire universe, the entire world. When they become hot, the divine presence departs from them. This is a person who does it just for lust. And they are left with fire. Like I said, Ish and Isha is Yud and hay. And if Yud and hay leave the man and woman, meaning the divine presence leaves them because they're only involved in lusts. So then they're only left with fire. And that's not the creative good fire. The thoughts of a person come from his intellectual soul, which is an extension of the supernal world. It is within the power of the mind to divest itself of its physical bonds 
and to ascend to its source. Then it will be attached to the supernal worlds from which it has come in such a way that the two become like one. So this is where, within all of the throes of lovemaking, you have to be able to put your mind in a different place. The Baal Shem Tov brings down this amazing rule, and you have to know this rule. Wherever your thoughts are, that is where you are. When you think about it, what does that mean? So a person's thoughts could be in the physical lusts, or the person's thoughts could be in the highest cosmic realms, and that he understands what's really going on at that time. That's what he talks about by being divested. Divest itself of the of its physical bonds. It becomes a spiritual union. This is practice. This is training. If you, if you, even if you could do it for two seconds when you're in the act, that's a start. It's an opening. Just to understand that in within this very act, it's not you and your wife anymore. <laughs> I hate to say this. Like, do you think that's air you're breathing, Neo? Okay. So the idea here is... When we say the rule of wherever your thoughts are, that is where you are. What do we mean by that? Let's just look at it just simply. Not necessarily have to do with the act of intimacy. Let's say if I'm sitting here in my study and I'm thinking about me going to Randall's because I have to go shopping right away. So therefore, while I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about me being at Randall's. I'm not here anymore. I'm at Randall's. How can that be? I'm, I'm, sit- I'm sitting physically in my study. How can it be that I'm at Randall's? Wherever my thoughts are, that's where I am. And the idea here is that it's been explained by the, the Bill Vavira, by Itamar Schwartz, that the thoughts that we think are the encasement of the soul. And the real bottom line is our essence, who we really are, is our soul. And our body is just a garment. He read a whole book on that, Getting to Know Yourself, that the whole theme of the entire book is our essence is not our physical bodies. Our essence is a our neshama, our soul, and our body is just a little encasement, like a shoe, like a shoe of our to our soul. So, if, of course, if your thoughts are somewhere else, that is where your neshama actually is, because your neshama is in, spans multiple dimensions. So... Even though your physical body might be here, the essence of really who you are is the soul. So therefore, while a person is in the act, he has to understand what's really going on at that time. This becomes quite cosmic. And there has to be a little bit of more Kabbalistic training, okay, for this to understand the cosmic union and what is the cosmic union. Because the idea here is our actions, what we do here below, they do trigger in the cosmic realm, unions. They cause, they trigger certain buttons to be pressed. And from those buttons that get pressed in the cosmic realm, in the, in the higher dimensions, it bleeds back down into here, what we call Shefa. Shefa means abundance and blessing. When we pray, we pray, we send up in energy when we pray, and that affects things in the spiritual realm that then will bleed back down into here very much like a circuit that works and it has to be a circuit. The circuit must flow and it bleeds back down into here abundance, Shefa, thoughts, good thoughts, the right advice. We all want the right advice. Do we not? Yes, we do. 
we'd like to go through life without making bad decisions. We will make bad decisions and they're good because we grow from them. But we would l- certainly like advice in terms of when it's a real bad decision. We would still, we would love to have the consciousness level of, no, I'm not going there. The idea here is when you, when a person is with his wife, it is an, uh, an unbelievable cosmic union that is happening that stirs, it shakes up. Imagine a rope that extends all the way to the spiritual realms. And if you shake the rope down here, of course that rope is going to have reverberatory effects in the cosmic realm. And then when this order is sent, so then comes down. That's how the cycle works. When the thought returns downward, because your thoughts are going up now, you're, you're, you're at, now hopefully the women, they should also have training for this. The women also have to, un- have to understand who their role they become the holy temple. The whole thing becomes this, the divine presence in the holy temple. And it becomes a cosmic event. So you have to understand that what is happening, you're going into the highest realms of consciousness. You're going into the whole idea of that you become the, in, in that godlike nature, the idea or the concept of I only want to give pleasure. That's really where you're coming from. Now, of course, the act, which is very, uh, uh, what we call it, distracting because you're receiving pleasure at the same time. But there's a kind of a flip side that you have to constantly flip yourself to of the real desire is I only want to give pleasure. And then she in turn also has that wanting to give versus receiving. It's a very, uh, like a fine line, but in the, in the ultimate cosmic realm, you become that aspect of God, that concept of that expression of God that only wants to give humanity the ultimate pleasure of connection. When the thought returns downward, then it forms a straight connection for the clear light to descend and extend it downward to the place of the perceiver. And this was the practice of the early saints, drawing down the supernal flux during prayer. Like I told you, and the power of thought that draws downward, draws down the divine presence. And then the first light binds everything together and increases the flow of blessing according to the power of the perceiver. This is an amazing kind of, it's kind of very esoteric the way that he's describing these words. But what it has to do with your imagination and your vessel. You have to imagine that you want to have an expanded consciousness because you understand that consciousness becomes form and all you need is the right idea. And, and of course, being that right idea, which means what? You're going to help humanity. You're going to be a big influencer, not only in your dynamic family, but extending out to the world and our goal is to become a conduit for that divine influx, for that level of knowledge, for that consciousness to be that powerful, dynamic influencer, only for the sake of elevating the world, uh, elevating humanity. And this is the secret of the miracles wrought by Eliyahu and Elisha. Eliyahu and Elisha were both prophets who were able to go ahead and bring down unbelievable miracles. And how did they bring down these miracles? They brought it down because of the power of their emunah. 
You remember we learned last week, Dan, that the Zohar says the Shechina wants to give. She's got the goods. She's got the goods. You're talking about infinity. You're talking about Ein Sof. Unlimited abundance. She wants to give, but she can only give drip, drip, drip. Because why? There's no Imuna down there. Nobody's got the right expanded mind to hold the right thought, the right expanded consciousness in order to have the expression of whatever it is that they're thinking. It's a powerful idea. This is almost we're in realms where it's too deep and too dark and we're caught in the ocean here. We're caught in a deep ocean here. Okay. But we get the idea a little bit. Consequently, our sages have taught that when a man and woman unite and their thoughts are bound to the supernal realms, then, and I am the Yud, you are the hay. then those thoughts draw downward the supernal light and inspires the sperm cells. This is also the meaning of the verse, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The cells, here he says here, the cells were germinated into that righteous prophet were already bound to the clear light beforehand. Because the parents' thoughts were attached to the supernal realm, they drew down the clear light. And there's my advice here, which is basically you have to imagine as if you brought the right thought down. It's all about doing that one thing, the right thought. I want to bring the right thought down. So you have to also imagine and use the power of imagination when you're in the middle of intimacy, the thought, I've already brought the right thought down. I already am the vessel for that right thought. And when you think that, just to think that thought, you already become that vessel and therefore you become the vehicle or the vessel for that actual right thought to actually come. In other words, you got to be there before you're actually there. The quantum thought realm. Also concerning our patriarchs who are occupied with eating, drinking, intercourse, and all the necessities of the material body. When did they have time to learn Torah? The answer is that even when they were occupied with the material body, their intentions were for the sake of heaven and their minds were not separated from the supernal light for an even moment. In other words, the idea here is to grasp your real self. To grasp your real self, which means you're grasping, I am an ashama, I am a soul, and my body is a garment. And everything that I'm doing here is really a reflection of something much higher in the spiritual realms, whatever that might be, eating, drinking, or intercourse. And that is why our father Yaakov, may he rest in peace, merited to give birth to the 12 tribes who were all complete tzaddikim. They were completely righteous. King Solomon said in Proverbs, In all your ways know him. Bechol dorachecha doe hu. Know him. In all your ways know him, and he will straighten your paths. Concerning this, our sages said, in all your ways know him, even for the necessities of the body, whether they are big or small. It's all about perception. You could look at the physical act of washing dishes or cleaning the floor as a physical act of cleaning the floor. But your mind can be on a higher realm that you are actually washing the holy temple. Would you imagine that? When you are lighting the candles, or your wife is lighting the Shabbos candles, yes, she's lighting Shabbos candles in the house, but her mind could be that she is the high priest or high priestess lighting the candelabra in the holy temple. So in other words, your mind could be in a completely different realm, and it's a training. It's a training. That, but that's why we have all of these 613 mitzvahs, and that's why we have the studying of Torah, because the study of Torah, which is, uh, which helps us to, uh, to enhance Enable to open up that mindfulness to be in the higher realm. This verse also uses the word know. 
when it's, don't forget, the words in the phrase is, in all of your ways, know Hashem. It has an interesting idea here. We talked about knowing what in the beginning. Adam knew Eve, his wife, which means intimacy. You already know about the concept of knowledge. It is the union of the intel- intelligent soul with the supernal light. I am connected to the infinite light. Now imagine yourself thinking that when you're even doing your mundane activities, and especially, especially, especially when the person is in the act of relations. I am connected to the infinite light. And the infinite light of knowledge flows through us. Imagine that. That's your meditation. Yud and hey, meditation number one, and meditation number two, I, we are connected to the infinite light. And now we are now engaged in a union which is going to bring light to the entire world. And it comes about through the thoughts in our minds and our imagination. It is also the union of men and women which is like the union of the soul with the lower world of perception. A person is not said to know anything until there is a binding connection between the perceiver and the perceived. Therefore, it is written, in all your ways know him, know God. And this is immediately followed with the words, and he will straighten your paths, because the supernal light will be bound to his activities, and they will all be for the sake of God. In other words, once you understand that God is everywhere, and there's no spot where God is not. So, of course, God is going to guide you to have the right thoughts, and, of course, to do it for the right reason. Within us is innate the will to do things for the right reasons. It is already there. The hard work is to get to it. The hard work, let's say we'll call it hard, is to access it. But it's already there. And the part of the work to access it is to know it's already there. That's the step one. That uh, that takes it all away. So the idea of what we covered here in terms of accessing greater light is that when we're in the act of intimacy, it is a not it's not just an act of intimacy with husband and wife in the physical sense, but a person has to be able to divest themselves of the physical and go into the realms of higher realms of divinity and think about why God created the world. He created the world in order to bestow pleasure to another. And our only desire should be that God should be manifest, God should express his infiniteness in the world. So that's like, we'll call that meditation number two or meditation number three. It's a lot to think about. But if you can only start with 10 seconds, it's an opening. God says, open for me the eye of a needle and I will open for you a huge, huge hall. The size of a huge hall. So in other words, we have to do our part and then God will do the rest. Thank you, Rabbi Cohen, for taking the time to share with us this profound information. I mean, we all use it to elevate in holiness this area of our life. And for those of you listening, Rabbi Cohen has shared with me that there is much more to be discussed. So anticipate and look forward to uh, potentially part three, part four, and part five of the Kabbalah of intimacy. So stay tuned. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.